Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Limcooler, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist at the University of Kentucky. Through the Beef Bits Podcast, we will share current news, management tips, new research, and other issues related to beef cattle production. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on beef cattle topics. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits Podcast and find the information useful. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Jason Smith. Dr. Smith is actually in Texas today. Dr. Smith, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you? Can't complain. It looks like we actually might get a little rain here um, today. So some of the uh, folks that are trying to get crops in may wind up having to slow down a little bit. It's uh, That's quite different from here in Amarillo. We haven't had rain for, gosh, I don't remember the last time we had rain. It's at least been been two or three weeks, and I don't think we're forecasted to have any for, for another couple of weeks. So, Yeah, it's a different transition. Uh, you know, Jason, uh, you, you were in Tennessee and, and then went out to Texas, and so you're you're used to our kind of fall and winter precipitation yes, sir. patterns. Yes, sir. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm born and raised in Virginia, so very similar. It, I joke whenever I go back home and, and help my brother with something that he's farming and trying to run cows in the rainforest, and uh, we're doing it out point. here in the desert. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, speaking of that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, background, Doctor Smith? Yes, I, I was born and raised in in the northernmost part of Virginia. So if you look on a map where Maryland, Virginia, and West Virginia come together, um, an area where there still is actually a decent amount of farmland. Um, but uh, born and raised there, grew up uh, in in 4-H beef cattle programs, uh, and then then went on and did an undergrad and master's at West Virginia. Um, and actually, did my advisor, I believe, was one of your grad school colleagues. If I remember correctly, that's um, right. Focused in ruminant nutrition and, and feed manufacturing. Did a little stint after my master's with the federal government. I worked uh, for the Food and Drug Administration on their medicated feeds team for just shy of two years. Uh, great opportunity. Got to learn uh, federal regulations and more specifically medicated feed regulations in and out. Um, went from there and, and did a PhD at Virginia Tech, focusing in, in applied nutritional management strategies for beef cattle. Uh, and then from there, spent about four years as a beef specialist at University of Tennessee. And just a little over two years ago, moved to Amarillo, where I serve as an extension beef cattle specialist in the Texas Panhandle for Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. So I work for, uh, for, for Texas A&M uh, out of college station but i'm i'm stationed about nine hours from campus so as in that position then you're predominantly uh program related more cow calf than feedlot primarily cow calf and stalker cattle uh, because we do have a very large stalker cattle presence here in the southern plains uh, but, but prim- primarily grass cattle is how i'll describe it i do some work uh, to support feed yards but because the feed yard industry has a an incredibly large consulting presence on the, the nutrition side on the environmental side on the health side uh we we still provide them with quite a bit of service it's just in a different way than than we traditionally do for cow calf and, and stocker operations 
Sure, that makes sense. And that, that kind of reminds me of my years in Wisconsin on the dairy side. There was a, certainly a pretty large consulting uh, industry there for the, the dairy industry. Absolutely. So I thought, uh, you know, given maybe given the differences that we have in climate that you just talked about with precipitation, uh, why don't you uh, give us a little bit of an update on what the current forage situation is there? You know, we came out of a year where a lot of those Western states had a pretty severe drought issue and kind of from actually Washington, Oregon, all the way down, even to probably uh, parts of, of Texas. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how have y'all recovered from that? Probably the best way I can describe it is it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride. Um, we actually had, as you mentioned, a pretty severe drought that stretched into a lot of a lot of West Texas and the Texas Panhandle. Um, there were, you know, I joke that uh, we a few months ago, a few months ago now, it's I lose track of time. Back in the the late spring, early summer, we probably got as much rain in a month as we had received in, in the year prior to that. Uh, so we were incredibly dry. I mean, there were, there were some areas that looked like the moon, just, just really, really dry. And, and, and one of the things that's, that's quite different about our grasslands for lack of a better term in this area is that they're, they're primarily, or they're predominated by warm season perennial native type forages. Um, and they're short grasses. Uh, and so a, a great stand, maybe six, eight at most 12 inches for, for these forages, but we have a relatively short growing season. And so, you know, the couple months that those forages are actively growing, whether or not we've had a little bit of moisture, received a little bit of moisture prior to that season or during that season may determine whether or not we grow any grass in our pastures for that entire calendar year. Yeah, we, we have some cool season forages. They're quite a bit different than, than you know, fescue and, and ryegrass back east. But um, they're same concepts apply. If we don't get moisture, we don't have grass. And, you know, we're, you know, here in, there's some variation uh, throughout the panhandle. But here where, where I'm sitting today in Amarillo, uh, we're about an 18 inch of, of annual rainfall area. Uh, where we're and, 45 to 60. Yep. Yeah. And most of that, you know, probably a third to half of that historically comes in August. We didn't get very much of that at all this year. We were fortunate in that we got got some some moisture uh, back in the late late spring and, and early summer. So we did grow some of those warm season grasses, blue grama, buffalo grass, some of those types. Um, but... Um, where we're at a really large deficit right now is for our cool season forages that would have hopefully picked back up uh, over the past few months. We really haven't had any moisture to support them. And from a stalker cattle standpoint, that's hugely impactful to our, our wheat pasture and our, our cool season annual grazing enterprises in that, you know, our wheat's every bit of a month behind uh, where, where we'd hope it would be right now um and if if that wheat's been under irrigation it may look pretty good if it if it was able to um to to be drilled at the right time but if not it's looking pretty poor and so our our 
currently, you know, we're on the on the downward side. We're we're not looking as good on that roller coaster ride that I mentioned. Whereas if if I'd answered that question four months ago, I'd say ah, things look pretty good. It's actually green in the Panhandle, but things can change pretty quickly here because you get a week of a hundred plus degrees with no humidity and the wind blowing fifteen or twenty miles an hour. A little bit of moisture leaves very very quickly. Uh, so all that to say, our, you know, our grazing conditions are 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 poor right now. Wow. That's, uh, you know, it strikes me and I'm sure probably some of the listeners that when, when you think of Texas, you don't think of a short growing season. Right. Right. And there's probably, you know, I would, I would say the Eastern half of Texas has far more in common with where you're sitting in Kentucky than, than where I'm sitting in the, in the panhandle right now in in terms of growing season forages and, and those kinds of things. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I just got to say, I, I threw a little bit of uh, weed out. You know, we we throw a little weed out on a cover crop on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't want to tell you this, but to brag or anything, but it's probably 12, 14 inches tall already. And I believe you. <laughs> now, now our weed under under center pivot looks looks really good right now. Yep. But but the majority of it is not irrigated. Uh, there's a considerable amount of dry land that's going to be grazed. So uh, it's it's not looking great right now which unfortunately has a trickle down effect for all of our cattle producers out here in the southeast and that um you know those those feeder calves that are being weaned now and marketed often will hit some of our wheat pasture areas and absolutely uh, that's maybe bodes why some of our markets aren't as strong right now as what they could be mm-hmm. absolutely you know we we rely on a lot of eastern cattle uh, to, to run on wheat and, and even to run on some of our native native pasture out here as well. But but a lot of those cattle are fed here without question. So given the fact that, that things are a little bit challenging forage wise, um, you know, you, you, you and I collaborated on a kind of a program with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association mm-hmm. some several months back now already, you know, same way we're we're getting a little older, I guess, and we lose track of time. But yeah, uh, it was a year ago. <laughs> oh my! I would have said six months. But uh, you know, we we were talking about you know energy and protein uh, supplementation of the cow calf herd and that then. But um, you're you're certainly in a position now where when we look at this, fixing to move into winter uh, with a with a beef cow herd, that that nutritional plane is probably pretty important and top of mind as you go out and talk to folks, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, it's, it is, I view it as no different for me uh, than it likely is for you in that regard. Uh, And, you know, a lot of the, the big picture concepts, they're the same if you're standing here versus, versus sitting where you are today. Um, So yeah, we're, that's, that's absolutely on top of mind for us right now. And so um, as you all are getting ready to, to head into, um, the winter. We, we've been really fortunate here. We've had a long, warm fall with good precipitation and grasses continue to grow and our cows are adding some flesh back, um, on these spring calvers and looking pretty good. But, um, as you sit here right now in your situation and working with your, with your producers, how important do you feel that you're body condition score status of your cows are right now as you begin to head into winter and is there kind of cause for concern oh i think it that status is critically important right now and and i think there's always cause 
for concern, um, regardless of the the situation, the year. And I guess where I'm, where I'm going or what I mean by that is I think that should certainly always be on the top of our minds. I think it's if we talk about, you know, things we can evaluate or management practices that truly have the potential to have a large impact on productivity at the cow-calf level, that's one of the two most important for me. You know, that's that's top of mind and one that I almost always talk about or, or try and try and use my my on ranch on farm opportunities to to discuss with with producers that that you know they're we can make big picture changes with productivity through managing body condition um, compared to a lot of other more. Uh, more finite or, or minute details uh, that we might be able to talk about or, or recommend. I think think body condition is is hugely impactful, hugely important. And and for us out here right now, given our current forage situation, it's going to be pretty darn important, and it's going to be pretty telling as to productivity for uh, the upcoming uh, calving and breeding seasons. Um, yeah. Yep. And, and that's one of the things right now, you all are probably, if you had, if you had spring calvers that were weaned here and, and didn't have that opportunity to maybe graze some really good forage uh, this fall, supplementation probably begins to come into question and, and recommendations. But now we're also hit with some bit of challenges with some high feed prices too, or uh, not astronomically high but certainly higher than it has been the last couple of years and so i'm i'm sure your phone's been uh, getting a few buzzes about that and what some recommendations are absolutely absolutely and so uh, when when we look at that what's what's kind of your approach on thinking about supplementation strategies uh, as we move here into the winter time yeah so you know one of the things that is quite a bit different in, in, in our environment versus, versus yours is that hay feeding is not a normal practice on ranches here. Um, yes, there may be a few that, that feed, feed hay for a few months out of the year, but by and large, the average cow that exists in the Texas panhandle and is grazing, you know, native pasture, um, the days that she consumes hay are the days that we're covered with snow. Uh, and so the reason I bring that up is I, I think that changes some of the recommendations that I make from a supplementation standpoint, because, you know, if we're, if our, our wintertime nutritional management strategies, the base of that program is going to be hay, well, it's, that hay is relatively fixed in terms of its nutrient content. So if, if I have a stack of, of round bales or, you know, whatever that lot of hay is, I can fairly easily and fairly economically get a get a snapshot, get a good handle of what that forage is going to provide to those cattle. Uh, and and in doing that, I can take that information and I can use it to design an optimal uh, and economical supplementation program to to fill whatever void I need to uh, to to ensure her productivity. Where that's different out here, we're not feeding hay, and so we're relying on what we would expect the normal seasonal changes in, in forage composition and forage availability uh, to be. Because that's that's one of the things I think we often forget about when it comes to designing supplementation programs is that it's it's not just 
just composition, it's amount of nutrients that are consumed. And, and when we provide cattle with the ability to go out and pick through things and, and decide what they're going to consume, we provide them with the ability to select a higher quality, uh, a higher quality diet. And, you know, to put it into perspective as well, you know, some of the environmental differences here from a, from a stocking rate standpoint, I would say the average cow out here is going to have the opportunity to graze about 30 acres throughout the year. And that may range anywhere from 15 up to 100 to 150, just depending upon, you know, that where, where that animal is, management, a, a number of factors. Um, but, but back to the, the initial question and point is I'm a firm believer in that our, our supplementation decisions should be based on needs and based on economics. Uh, and if we, we keep both of those two things in sight and we have, have a good grasp on, on what those needs are and we do a good job of evaluating the value of our supplemental feedstuff options, we can do a pretty good job at putting together what I'm going to call an optimal and an, and an economical supplementation program. The unfortunate part about this year is everything's expensive. Uh, and I don't know if it, if nationwide, how consistent things are, but I, uh, the prices I'm seeing are, we're somewhere in the vicinity of 1.5 to two times uh, the cost for protein and energy supplements this year as to where we would have been pre-COVID. Wow. Uh, what's, we're, is it similar where you are? No, we're, we're not quite that far. We're probably somewhere between, um, let's say 15 to 35%, depending on what feedstuffs we're looking at. Okay. So, um, we, we haven't seen that, um, large increase just yet. Yeah. We're, cool. I used distillers as an example. The last load of distillers that we bought was, we were at 285 a ton for dry distillers. Whereas, you know, we'd have been somewhere in the vicinity of about $180 or so for that about two years ago. Yep. Yep. And that's, um, that's certainly increased for us, but not quite to that extreme just yet uh, you know the ironic thing is there's three ethanol plants in the texas panhandle really <laughs> there's a tremendous amount of demand for the byproduct though um and that's and probably running a lot of sorghum or milo through that instead of corn not right now because there's been so much support for uh sorghum prices because of exports um i think if you took exports and export growth out of the equation Milo would have probably priced in to where there would have been more fed and more more going into as a feedstock for ethanol, but it's still uh, been primarily corn. Uh, that's my understanding, at least. Now, where that's a little different, and, and I'm not I'm not certain how many of our plants have done this, but but there were times when corn got as high as it did this past uh, spring and early summer, where there was a decent amount of wheat being fed. Uh, down here and I would I would imagine if you can justify feeding it you can probably justify using it as a feedstock for ethanol yeah that's a good point and um, yeah that that was a short blip there for a while um, wheat prices were kind of soft and I, I think for us too we're somewhat fortunate that we do have that 
bourbon industry here. Mm -hmm. And so we've got a, um, you know, an opportunity to utilize a lot of that spent grain, either mm -hmm. through stillage or dried grains. And that kind of helps keep our price a little bit in check. And then, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're just outside the edge of that corn belt. And so we're not that far to be able to get distillers in a, maybe a little bit more economical, um, just from the sheer no number of ethanol plants in the area. Right. Right. Granted, I think what Tennessee only has one, maybe two, and we only have one or two ethanol plants in the state. So right. uh, we, we don't have the 20 or so the 30 that some of the uh, upper Midwest have, but mm -hmm. um, that product still got to go somewhere. You know, one of the other things that's quite a bit different here is from a supplementation standpoint, you know, back, back East there in the mid South region, there were a lot of just straight commodities used as supplemental feedstuffs. Um, a lot of blended feeds and a lot of commercial products used, but a, but a tremendous amount of, of, of straight commodities, whether it be soy hull pellets, uh, gluten feed, distillers, uh, what have you. There's very little of that that's actually utilized at the cow-calf level, uh, with the exception of confinement cow-calf production. But in terms of supplementing cows on range here, most of what is supplemented is going to be in some sort of cube form and, and our guys call it cake, uh, but some sort of, you know, large pellet cube. Um, I think some of that in certain situations was a necessity because of environment and the wind blows 10 to 15 miles an hour here almost all the time. Um, and so, so shrink can be tremendous on a fine, fine feed stuff. Um, if, if not, if some of the preventative measurements aren't put in place to try to try to mitigate that loss. Uh, and so a lot of those are going to be fed as cubes. Historically, they would have been a cottonseed meal based cube. Um, over the past few years, there's been a, a tremendous amount of increase in feeding distillers cubes. Um, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot. You know, I'm a huge fan of distillers grains, uh, and byproducts of, of, of corn milling, whether we're talking about gluten or distillers, but, um, seen a lot of, a lot of interest in, in feeding those in the area, but all that to say, uh, there's less diversity in the supplemental feedstuffs that are fed, uh, here. And I, I think that holds true for a lot of the West. Uh, because of the extensive environments those those cattle are, are often managed in but let's be honest about it a lot of it is tradition uh, as well because I do think we have some opportunity to, to change some of those things and that probably leads me into you know I mentioned this whole concept of, of economics and va making value-based supplemental feedstuff decisions um, there are a lot of hidden costs to supplementation and and if we forget those that can get us into into trouble uh pretty quickly and you know we talk about free feeding opportunities and nothing's free let's let's be honest there's there's a cost associated with all of that and 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 that holds true in this environment and that we often overlook some of those hidden costs of supplementation whether it be what it costs for us to go pick it up and bring it back to our operation what it costs to store it what it costs to deliver it to cattle um, what we lose throughout that entire process, uh, that we, we paid for that they never even had the opportunity to, to consume, um, those concepts still remain true out here. And I think there's something that regardless of where feedstuffs are pricing in at, I think those need to be on in the back of people's minds. 
Yeah, especially probably the feed delivery out there makes um, it's a hidden cost that people don't think about. But um, where you've got to cover a lot more range to get feed out to those cattle um, with a limited amount of, of weight that you can maybe even haul in a mm -hmm. in a truck, it gets to be expensive. Absolutely. So, um, you know, the other thing I'm assuming that, you know, a large difference, which you mentioned earlier, is your forage those warm season forages, those kind of native uh, kind of prairie grasses are, are mm -hmm. going to be from this point forward, I suspect, declining in quality as you move through the winter? Yes and no. So our our cool season perennial forages, so our, our wheat grasses, is, that's going to predominate a lot of our pastures, short, short grass and intermediate grass pastures in the area. Uh, our blue stems, um, they 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 do a very poor job of holding on to, to nutrients. Our warm season short grasses do a phenomenal job of of retaining nutrients throughout dormancy. Uh, our our warm season tall grasses, you know, like switch grasses, um, our our tall which I guess our tall blue stem uh would be a would be a warm season uh indian grass some of those um they they're much more similar in in regards to they they don't hang on to nutrients very well but like our blue grama uh, our buffalo grass um i would argue they do that's one of their values in that and one of the reasons why we run cattle on so much ground uh would be that they have the ability to retain nutrients at a level that may not completely support the cow herd throughout the winter but probably do do a better job or get a little closer to doing that than than our you know, our traditional cool season forages will, while they are dormant, if that makes sense. Yep. Sure does. Yeah. Um, they're, those short grasses are pretty phenomenal, but you know, you would go come and look at one of our pastures right now and say, Holy smokes, it's Brown. There's nothing out there, but that forage is still pretty, pretty good quality. And if, if we provide them with the ability to, to, to select, um, put enough forage in front of them, they can do a pretty good job at coming close to meeting their requirements. And one of the other things here for us is, you know, moisture. We don't get a lot of moisture, so we don't get that moisture-induced um, increase in nutrient requirements when it's cold. Now, don't get me wrong. We do – cold contributes to nutrient requirements here. Um, you know, we had a week last – this past February where we did not get above below zero, and the wind blew 35 miles an hour. Nutrient requirements were huge during that that period of time, um, and we'll get down below freezing base almost every every night throughout the winter. But we may get up to 60, 70 uh, during the day a lot of times. So, um, but we don't have humidity. Um, you know, relatively speaking, we don't have humidity, and 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 we don't get a lot of rain throughout the winter time. Uh, we get some snow um, and some ice, but but those events are are pretty scattered throughout, and so. If, you know, th those forages are, can do a pretty decent job at, at maintaining uh, body condition throughout uh, the winter months. And, and our spring calvers are going to be born a little later than, than your alls are uh, for the most part. You know, our, a lot of our true spring calving isn't, isn't going to happen till, till March, April or May. 
Um, so we don't, we, yes, we have some people that are calving in January, February, um, but, but not as many as, 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 as would be normal back East. Um, but that, you know, I, maybe circling back to the body condition discussion a little bit is, you know, what I think if, if, if operations don't have a handle on, on body condition and, and don't recognize its value, I, I certainly, certainly want to encourage them to, to revisit or, or rethink that because, you know, I, to me, it's our insurance. It is, it is insurance for calf health. It is insurance for reproduction. Um, you know, I get asked a lot of questions about what are, what can, can we do or what's this, the new cool silver bullet for, you know, changing reproduction. Uh, and, you know, a lot of these feedstuffs that we might talk about things, you know, we're talking about moving the bar a very, very small degree you know, a very small or marginal improvement by some of those things that, that, yeah, they may, may have that positive effect. We want to make big and meaningful changes. Managing body condition is in my opinion, how we do that. Uh, and I, that's one of the things I encourage people to evaluate is you got a problem with repro. Let's look at body condition. You got a problem with calf health, calf survival through weaning. Let's look at body condition. Let's look at nutrition because those are in my opinion, I'm a nutritionist. So I'm a little biased. I know you are too. Yeah, nothing but, wrong with that. But uh, but I mean, those are those are uh, highly controlled through through nutrition. And the reality is, can we can we meet a cow 100 of a cow's protein and energy requirements through nutrition? Yes, we can do it. You know, every day of the year, we'll go out of business pretty darn quick if we try and do that. Uh, and and so that's where body condition is at insurance provides us with that flexibility so that when we aren't physically meeting her energy requirements, she's got enough in the tank to pull from and, and help to fill that void. So, I mean, I figure, you know, these are my rough, rough numbers, but you figure the amount of energy that's contained in a body condition score. And this varies when we go from a three to a six or a seven, but you know, you figure there's somewhere in the vicinity of about two weeks worth of energy stored in a body condition score. So, you know, if 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 we're managing that cow and that environment, she's at a 20% energy deficit. Well, she's going to drop a condition score in 85 days or so. So, you know, that's that that may be okay if she's got enough in the tank to meet the need, but when she runs out of gas, she runs out of gas and she starts cutting things out, right? Absolutely. She starts sacrificing stuff that's not important to her own survival. And that's when we run into, into problems with productivity. Um, yeah, I like to, there's some old, old data that I like to use in some of the programs and it's, uh, it's back fat and, and long instruments or a ribeye areas on different body condition score mm -hmm. cows. And, you know, you, you set up there at a, a condition score six and that ribeye area is, you know, around 10, 11 inches in a, in a cow. And this is older data, but, um, then you're also looking at around three tenths of an inch or, or so of back fat and you get down to a body condition score two, three. That ribeye area is six to eight inches, mm -hmm. maybe square inches. And, and back fat is, you know, basically zero to maybe a half of a tenth. Um, and so, you know, you, you sit there and you 
think about it, we got hogs that are killing with ribeyes that are, you know, eight to 10 square inches in some That's cases. Right. So, um, yeah, we, we, we don't appreciate the amount of muscle and fat that that cow will mobilize to support her needs when she's short but we can't ask her to be as productive as a cow that's in good body condition score either. That's right. So as we look, and and I just looked here a while ago, our ethanol plant's got distillers at 190 a ton FOB. So we were probably looking at 230, 240, getting it back, you know, home. Um, what what would be some good approaches or, or your approach when you start talking to these ranchers about, all right, we need to supplement these cows. Um, Feed prices are higher than they have been pre-COVID. What what is going to be our strategy this year? So, and this is, I want to I want to put the question back on you too because I'd like to hear what your thoughts are. My strategy is from a an identifying a supplemental feed stuff, whichever one's going to be the right one for us. You know, whichever one's going to price in. And to me, again, that's not retail price. That's that's based on value. And, you know, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of cost per unit of nutrient. So if we're needing to fill a protein void costs per, per pound of, of, of crude protein, and there are other things than retail price that go into that, right. Those hidden costs that we talked about. But to me that I, I don't approach that any differently during a time when feeds costs are high versus when they're low because the same concepts apply if we want to try to be as profitable as possible and try and minimize our, our input costs. One of the things that that I do at that time or in this kind of situation where, you know, I mentioned I'm a nutritionist, but I put it back a little bit on genetics. Um, let's evaluate the, the cattle that are, let's identify the cattle that are critical to the success of our operation. Let's identify ones that are not matched or not paired very well to our environment. So those cows that that can't maintain body condition, because if we look at our herd, body condition distribution should follow some kind of bell-shaped normal distribution, right? So, you know, by and large, the average of them are going to be at one point, but there's going to be some that are pretty darn fat. <laughs> there's going to be some that are pretty darn skinny. Why are those that are skinny that way and it's most likely because they aren't matched to our environment and so those are the cows that are really going to be expensive to maintain they're going to drive our costs of the herd up because they pull that average in one direction right and so let's maybe find a new career for those cows in the industry and in my opinion by doing that over time we're going to be be shaping our herd to look a little more like what we need it to look like, at least based on what our environmental conditions are. Take that back to feeding decisions. That might decrease our our supplementation requirements for that herd for the year because now we're not dealing with a herd that's an average of body condition of four. Now they're 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 a five or a six, and okay, they've got more more in the tank to to meet their their needs and so i'm gonna have to feed them a, a lot less to to fill whatever void that i need to what are your thoughts i'm so happy to hear you say that and and monday night i <laughs> was given a meeting or at a meeting and, and gave a presentation on preparing for winter and nutrition and producer came up after the program and asked he said so so we look at these cows and thinking about it 
do we supplement to the lowest kind of condition score cows? Do we supplement to the average? He goes, well, what do you recommend? And I said, I said, I would not supplement to the lowest because all we're doing there is we're putting a bandaid on cows genetics that probably don't fit our resources. And all you're going to wind up. Yep. All you're going to wind up doing is, is having a herd that is too costly to maintain throughout the next five to 10 years. And, and one thing that I think our producers forget is even though they may not be selecting for it, the genetic trend in a lot of our breeds has been for increased weight, mature weight size mm-hmm. and increased milk production. And so if you, if you want to think about that as all right, a, a midpoint 50 percentile EPD um, in the Angus today, that EPD value is going to be much higher than it was 10 years ago. Absolutely. And so even though I've always stuck with, picking milk at that 50 percentile, the genetic trend for milk production has increased. And so the nutritional needs of that cow are going up. And, and so that is, I, I agree 100% with you. And, and the only other thing that you mentioned already for us is, is my approach is to really hammer home. Let's start with uh, one, what is our forage base and what do we need to make up in a supplement that the forage is not supplied? applying and it's easier for us because we've got our hay and the only other thing is is um i I think you hit this when you mentioned it and and i didn't uh point it out and i should have right away but the first thing you said was meet the cow's needs and then second thing you said was as economically as possible and that's the exact way i approach it the cheapest feed supplement is not always the best yep absolutely Absolutely. And you know what, one area where that becomes important that we have to critically evaluate a feedstuff's ability to meet those needs would be some of our, our self-fed or self, self-limiting self supplements. Uh, and there's certainly situations where those may be the best option for that operation. But one of the questions we do have to ask is, is that feed capable of filling that nutrient void if we're if if it is our intention to depend on it to do so you know and you and I went through some of those numbers during that NCBA presentation that you mentioned um and and I think if uh, a lot of people would be surprised to find that some of those supplements that they're expecting to do that by design they're not going to do that they're not going to come anywhere close and so I think that's the other aspect is, you know, is that option even capable of filling the void or do we have to add on another option right. to potentially fill whatever additional void uh, remains, you know? And, and so I, I really don't think we're any different out here except for that we're not feeding hay. And so instead of me relying on someone's forage analysis to make that recommendation, I'm relying on on what I'm expecting forage composition to be given that ranch and shoot, you go a couple miles down the road, it might be completely different. So that gets very, very challenging. Um, we are we are doing a lot of a lot of research and, and putting a lot of emphasis into forage profiling right now to try to um, be able to better make those recommendations. It just adds in that that additional unknown. So um a little more challenge. You mentioned something though, Jeff, that, that 
you know, I think I've spent a lot more time focusing on over the past few years and have a lot of interest in is, you know, you mentioned mature weight and cow size. And I, I think that's something, and I think this relates back to wintertime feeding uh, and supplementation decisions that we really need to get a much better grasp upon is what are cows weigh? I'm going to be willing to bet that they weigh at least 200 pounds more than, than what most of us are going to estimate them to weigh. Um, and, and evaluate what we can do with more cows that are a little smaller. Um, my, my brother gives me a hard time and, and he, he takes it a little to the extreme and tells me I like teeny tiny cows. And, and, <laughs> and I don't think that's true. Um, but you know, there are a lot of us that think we have thousand pound cows and for the most part, that thousand pound cow is a uni- unicorn. Um, it, most of those are 12, 1300 pound cows. Right. And that's, I think, I think you do things a little similarly to how I do is that if we're running numbers on an average cow, we're going to call her a 13 or 1400 pound cow. The reality is there's a heck of a lot of 16, 1800 pound cows out there that my brother, I'll use him as an example. Again, called me the other day with a, a, a cow that, uh, he had, he had marketed and, um, you know, I, I would, I'd, been giving him hard time about some of the bigger cows and he said that cow weighed almost 1600 pounds i said yeah so some of those cows you think are really small are not nearly as small as as they actually are and i i i I, you know i'm teasing a little bit but i bring that up because i'm a true believer that set of scales are worth their weight in gold and they can they can certainly um pay dividends on on the investment um that's one of the things that's important for me to know though, if I want to make a very specific supplementation recommendation is I've got to have a pretty good idea of what, what those cows weigh, uh, what size they are. If not, I'm going to overestimate. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to be conservative and I'm going to add a hundred pounds on to probably what they, what they actually are just to, you know, um, be, be conservative and make sure that we don't un, unknowingly, make a recommendation to feed less than, than what we need to, to meet that cow's requirements. Absolutely. And the other thing that we forget about is that weight being off 200 pounds messes up other things like some of our health protocols. If we're trying to use a dewormer, you know, those dewormer products all say so many mils per hundred pounds of body weight. And if you're 200 pounds off, it's not going to be as effective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I don't want to take our conversation away from, you know, where, where you, you had intentions for it going today, but I do think that going back to the initial point of let's critically evaluate the cows and the herd and decide which ones work in our environment or which ones are critical to the success of our, our operation or its future moving forward. Um, you know, those really big cows are really expensive to feed and they typically do not return that amount of wean, that proportional amount of, of increased wean calf. Um, and there's a lot of numbers to support that. A lot of data that's been collected to, to support that. And that is, that is the other flip side. You mentioned that bell curve, right? And, and so it would be fantastic if that 1600 pound cow, weaned a calf off that was 40, 45% of her body weight. 
But unfortunately, when we look at that data, that's not the case. And, and the same can be said about body condition score. If I got a cow that comes in at a body condition score three and she has a calf every 365 days and it's in the top 20% on weaning weight, she's, she's that unicorn. Heck right? yeah. Yep. So you want to keep her. Yep. Unfortunately, there's just not a lot of cows that do that. And no. the, the vast number of data points, I mean, thousands of cows that were looked at show us that when you get cows that are marginally thin are, are not as productive, they don't wind up breeding back as quick. They stay in an estrus for a longer period of time. They don't have as much colostrum. They don't produce as much milk over the entire lactation. So they wean off a lighter calf. So we, we've got to be careful. I, I agree. We've got to be careful on thinking about using supplementation as a Band-Aid over yep. genetics. Yep. Yeah, there's there's that happy medium of what's, what's realistic and going to work for that operation from a supplementation standpoint. And then, then, then morphing that herd to, to fit what, what that environment's going to, going to be able to, to provide certainly. Yep. Um, well, I think we've rambled on quite a bit. Um, this has been good discussion, Jason. We're going to have to do this again. That sounds great. I, I love the opportunity. I've certainly enjoyed it and, and appreciate you. You give me the opportunity to get on and visit with you a little bit today. Yeah, it's been too long. We're up to do this a little more often. And uh, yes, before we, before we part, is there anything else that you want to share? Uh, even if it's, uh, Anything about AM football or anything like that, even? <laughs> I did. You know, my grandfather called me in the middle of the game just to 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 let make sure I was watching it, which I wasn't at that time, uh, the night they beat Alabama. So Yeah, um, buddy. No. But you know, I you know, back to you know, our, our conversations is I, I I truly, truly believe that there's there's a lot of benefit that can be had from 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 getting a handle on 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 body condition on on our operations and um and just just certainly a, a tremendous amount of resources that are available uh to 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 help producers do that you know you and I are two of those but there there are there are a lot of a lot of print resources a lot of digital resources there's a lot of stuff out there that that producers could use so encourage them certainly to 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 embrace that opportunity uh and then you know one of the things that we didn't mention but I think plays into our discussion is pretty important is you know, if we want to identify those cows that work on the operation and don't, pretty hard to do that without records and without individual identification. I'll leave it at that. Well, I, gosh, we must uh, be on the same train <laughs> of thought because I was going to make a wrap-up comment is that, that when we're talking about body condition scoring, we're, we're not just talking about looking at them window of the pickup truck and just, yeah, they all look pretty good. We're actually talking about writing down a number yep. for every cow. Yep. Absolutely. Because, you know, it's easy to go back and say, well, you know, those those 30 heifers that I took and and, uh, kept back in AI didn't breed where the darn that that semen must have been bad or that technician must have been bad. And that probably wasn't the case. Yep. But it's easy to put the blame on somebody else. Yeah. We we may be able to look at a cow, you know, that uh, gosh, she calved in at a body condition score six and she's dropped two condition scores already in the first month and, and that might be a disease issue. Mm-hmm. And so having those records of those body condition scores, I think are important for diagnostic work as well. Absolutely. I agree. Don't, you know, don't overlook the opportunity every time you lay eyes on the cows 
or those cattle to evaluate body condition. That's important, but that's more of a, are they getting a little thin or are they getting, you know, a little fleshy, but to your point, it's, it's important to have a record and, and maybe focus on some set times throughout their productive year to do that. You know, everybody has their, their preferred times of, of doing that. But for me, um, those are, you know, if we're going to do it three times, that's, that's at calving, that's at breeding, that's at weaning. Um, if you're only going to do it two, my, this is my personal opinion. Um, those are at calving and those are at weaning because those give us they give us the opportunity to potentially make a change based on that information that that crit, that objectively assigning so assigning those body condition score numbers to those cattle you know give us opportunity to actually make a change change our, our management change our feeding practices and potentially have an impact uh 100 agree you know if you got a body condition score that's equivalent to almost 100 pounds of live weight and you got 30 days to do it, you're asking them to gain like a feedlot animal. It's just not practical. Give me, give me 120 days over the winter though. We can do it. We can do it. Absolutely. Well, Jason, I, I think this has been great. And uh, I want to thank you again for joining us from, uh, from Amarillo. And uh, thank we'll, you. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. And we'll certainly do this again and uh, tell the, well, I guess tell all your folks that uh, hopefully uh, greener grass will be coming soon. That's right. Hope so. <laughs> we'll push some of our moisture your way if we can. We would gladly take it. All right. Well, Jason, thanks again. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Beef Bits podcast. We hope you found it enjoyable and informative. Be sure to subscribe to the Beef Bits podcast for future episodes as well as listen to previous ones. Until next time, be safe and reach out to your county extension office for more information on beef management topics.